So today, uh, it's podcast. I just I kind of want to touch on something that I dealt with when I was a member of the state legislature and something that I, I I've been watching. And I hope it's more anomalies from what I've been exposed to as opposed to a trend. But there's a there's an underlying theme in a lot of this stuff that's going on um, in, um, in, in in the subject matter which I want to talk about. Right. So one of the biggest things. Okay, well, I, I'll just come out and say it. I I have been frustrated for a long time with the lack of trust and cooperation uh, we see amongst African-Americans, black people, when we got into a whole conversation before about what you want to call folks, right? But I'm just going to use the terms I'm used to using and but you know who I'm talking about, right? So, you know, one of the things I encountered a lot as an elected official was how we do our best to undermine each other. Now, it could be just human nature, right? It could just fall under the fact that human beings do it a lot of the things that I get frustrated about or complain about. But since I don't interact with people of other races on a regular basis as I do black people, then of course my frustration and my my ire, I guess for lack of a better term, is just going to be directed toward us. And for those folks who are not black who are listening or would listen to this. I'm sure you've got your own issues and your own problems within your own communities, right? And that's good. Well, it's not good, but it's, it's, if however y'all want to deal with them, then that's how y'all want to deal with them. Um, there are some people who say, well, why would you want to be public with that? Because it's time. So let me, let me just put this into context, right? So one of the th- dangerous things that we do historically is that we mythologize or, mythologize or make bigger, legendary, bigger than what it was, historical successful things. Case in point. Civil rights movement, right? You know, the civil rights movement is viewed as this mass thing where all black people got together and agreed and said, we're going to change the system and we're all going to get behind Martin Luther King. And, you know, we got the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. And, you know, and now black people moved a step from being second class citizens to first class citizens again. And, you know, all those Jim Crow laws are gone. And, and, you know, and so when we deal with politicians who say the good old days, it's like, oh, no, 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 those were the days when we were marching 
We don't want the good old days back, right? So, you know, so the, it paints this rosy picture. What the reality was that Dr. King moved into leadership because he was a new kid in the room. He was a 26-year-old preacher, just moved into town. All the other preachers either didn't want to do anything concerning the treatment of the buses, the segregation in the buses, and other issues in Montgomery. Um, and then there were some preachers that people did not trust, right? There were some people that people did not uh, want to follow. Um, they, for whatever reason, right? So a lot of stuff that you run into today, that was happening back then too. And so because Dr. King hadn't made any enemies and people didn't know how successful this was going to be, so just put this young guy out here who can talk pretty good and see what happens, right? Little did they know his his extensive training and his reading of Gandhi and all these kind of things. And so you basically gave this guy an opportunity to experiment. And he was successful, right? Um, organizing one of the most successful boycotts in American history. So, you know, but we, we, you know, like everything was great and all this stuff. And so you have to watch certain period pieces, uh, even though Hollywood movies are fictionalized based because you, if you don't have the actual conversations documented, you can't script it exactly what was said, but you get tone and you get the effects put in in a dramatic way because you only have a couple hours to tell the story. So a lot of elements that took months to develop might happen like in a couple of minutes. But those elements were real, right? And so they, they're accurately depicted. And so you have to acknowledge that. And, and one of the things, a lot of, one of the things a lot of people don't know about Dr. King was his, he was a chain smoker, right? Um, it, that was, that was just a thing. And of course, as more and more pressure mounted on him to lead a mass movement against American or Southern segregation, however you want to define it, uh, racial injustice. Um, yeah, he smoked, I'm sure he smoked like a chimney because he needed something to calm his nerves, right? Tobacco did that for him. But another thing he did was he, he shot pool really, really well. Almost to the point where if he wasn't a preacher, he'd probably be a pool shark, right? And so him going into a bar, just like, well, not now in most cities, but back then, the bars, smoke-filled rooms, right? Walk in here, smoke didn't bother him. As a matter of fact, he lit one up. And one of the most classic pictures you'll ever see of Dr. King is him sitting there with that cigarette hanging on the edge of his lip, lining up a shot. And all these guys are just amazed, you know. But that's how he was recruiting people, young men. He'd go to the tavern and he'd bet them. And the bet was if I win, you show up at the rallies. 
If I don't win, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But if I win, I need to see you at the rally because I need you there. I need to see your face in the place. And they were like, well, okay, he's a preacher. Surely I can beat him in pool. I don't feel like being bothered with that mess. And then when Dr. King ran the table on him, next thing you know, they had to be at the rally, right? I say all that to say that, you know, the mythology about heroic figures and all that is not really necessary, right? The fact, what they did, what they accomplished is enough to make them heroic figures. Because if you understand heroes in the traditional Greek tragedy sense, most heroes have shortcomings. But they they pull off this miraculous thing or they pull off this courageous thing and they're endeared forever, right? So I, I throw all that in to talk about the backdrop of how many people antagonized him, how many people questioned his leadership, how many people questioned his uh, his intent, his motivation, um, his, his strength, his tenacity, um, his mindset. I mean, it challenged everything because they didn't trust him, right? But as time grew, you know, and these victories started happening, and even the failures, the failures were eff- epic attempts, right? Like St. Augustine, Florida. Those were epic attempts that in the overall scheme of things, even though that was a minor setback, it still played a major role that taught some lessons and enabled the movement to continue to go forward. Um, but then as he did gain notoriety, as he did gain this national and international stature, then of course there were contrary voices. Now you, you had the nation of Islam and you had Malcolm X as this fiery leader and he was very critical. And of course, by the time he left the nation, he was close to the time that he was assassinated. He and, and, and Dr. King, even though they only had one face-to-face meeting, there was there were some back channel conversations in which you could tell that Malcolm was putting himself out there to say if you don't do what he does what he's suggesting then you're going to have to deal with people like me who take a more radical approach right and Dr. King vice versa right because after Malcolm died then came people like Stokely Carmichael and um, the young folks black power and changing the dynamic of, well, you know, we, we did this nonviolent thing and, and the changes are great, but they're going really, really slow. And we got to get to a point where we got some economic parity and it's time to shake some things up, right? And and Dr. King knew, saw it coming. And he he never really denounced it. He just said, Stay the course. It's going to be okay. Don't do anything uh, to kind of set us back in your eagerness to push the envelope, right? And if you had the pleasure of meeting Stokely Carmichael, and who 
when he died, he had changed his name to Kwame Ture. When you had a chance to talk to him, you realize how intelligent he, he, he was and how aware he was of language and strategy and all that. Um, all the time that I've spent with him, which wasn't like I was up under his feet, but at least I had privilege to be in a room several times and have conversations and him reminiscing and teaching about his role in the latter part of what we call the civil rights era. And he never said a disparaging thing about Dr. King, not one time. Um, you know, which you'd be hard pressed to see that now, right? With black leadership. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to see somebody get to a certain point and, you know, and people may disagree. In this day and age of instant news, instant heroics, instant demise, right? You, you see people tear down folks with reckless abandon. And to be truthful and honest, I'm sure I contributed to that in some way, shape, or form, intentionally or unintentionally. I've said some things to people, public, private, um, that tore into a person's character that made it seem like we're not cool, right? That I don't respect the contributions that they've done. And so publicly, at this particular point, I want to apologize for that. Because when we get to the other side, we need to talk about why my apology Anybody else who wants to apologize, anybody else who wants to reflect on how they've handled certain things, why we need to do that. Because we're, we are now at a very, very critical point in our history where we ain't got to be kumbaya folks. <laughs> we ain't got to be buddy buddies, but we got to be more unified and focused in what we're trying to achieve. And I'll, and I'll talk about that urgency on the other side. So now that we're on the other side, let me, let me just say this. If, if you are a person of color, especially an African-American, a black person, and you don't understand the urgency of now, then I think what would be beneficial to you, regardless of your age, is to look at our history, not just the history of, if you're a millennial, your parents or your grandparents, right? But look at, prior to the Civil Rights Movement, look at 
the Reconstruction period. And, and start watching trends that happened during those times and what you're seeing right now. Because a lot of, a lot of the things that are happening are historical tendencies to create validation for Jim Crow, validation for segregation, validation for racist institutions, right? Institutional racism, however you want to flip it around. We, we are at a very critical point, almost as critical as when Woodrow Wilson was the president, right? Because during that era, it was important for white people to reestablish in a positive way the institutions that allowed them to be powerful, especially in the South, right? Because one of the things that people need to understand about political dynamics is that in America, people are about keeping power as much as they can, right? They're about making sure that uh, once they've attained power, they don't lose it. And what, what you have seen, what, what you saw, which culminated with Woodrow Wilson ascending to the presidency was um, because you, he was a Southern-born president. A lot of people forget that. You know, he was, you know, chancellor, president at Princeton University. So people think he was of a different, if you know, background or whatever, he was Southern, right? And though the world stage had to propel him to a different level, even to the point where he stroked out and his wife technically was running the country his last few days, um, nonetheless, it was, it was a mindset that he had. Um, and that other white people had and felt that it was time to repel that. And the biggest propaganda move they made was Birth of a Nation, right? The movie. For those of you who are younger, you, you think of Birth of a Nation, you think of the recent version that told the Nat Turner story. The reason why it was named that was to counter the original Birth of a Nation, which told the story of the Klan. It basically made the Klan... American heroes, um, instead of what they were, according to the United States Congress, which was a terrorist organization. And we're only talking about 40 years removed from legislation that deemed them a terrorist uh, organization, that you had a movie depicting them as American heroes, right? So... That period of Reconstruction, right, that period where it even got to the point where black people, former slaves, were in political power. 
they had positions of military power and prestige, right? Not only were they elected officials, but they were commanders of local regiments, right? To keep the peace. Um, they were sheriffs, what have you. And so in the South, white folks hated that concept, hated it. You know, one thing to be stripped of their land and their wealth due to war. But the last remnant, that political power, which they had attained because in the U.S. Constitution, since every slave was three-fifths of a person, right, and the southern states had the preponderance of the slaves, then that meant that there were more congressmen from the South than from the North, right? Therefore, political power. Once the South seceded from the Union, of course, they lost that. And then they, and then they ended up having to struggle to regain it during the Reconstruction period. But through terrorist acts, through other kinds of um, things based on white privilege, lack of a better term, right? Because they still had some economic latitude, um, some, some capital, they were able to get enough of a foothold where by the time Rutherford B. Hayes got elected, Reconstruction was nicely over, right? So, you know, and, and their whole goal is to make sure that blacks, the political power that blacks had attained, as Republicans, by the way, because that was the party that Abraham Lincoln was, that was the anti-slavery party back then, so black folks identified as Republicans then. And it took a long time, like well into the 20th century before that shifted, right? to the Democrats. And there's a reason for that, right? So when you let's 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 talk about that because a lot of a lot of these Donald Trump supporter Republicans like to bring that up, right? So here are the factual histories of that. The Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats, who had gained power at the end of the Reconstruction. This is where we get the term rednecks from, by the way. When you hear folks talk about rednecks, it's because these terrorists, the insurrectionists, as they call themselves, will wear these red bandanas around their neck, right? And so that was the nickname to identify them. They were the rednecks, right? So these, these guys, once they attained that power and they identified as Democrats, right? And so now all these Southern politicians are Democrats. And, of course as the civil rights movement was gaining strength and, and you saw that people were attaining a certain amount of political acumen and power again, black people, then came to the challenge, right? So blacks in Mississippi primarily, and other states did it too, but Mississippi was more famous. Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. So basically, the black people in Mississippi created their own Democratic Party, right, to challenge the established Democratic Party. 
the traditionals, the regulars, as they called themselves, right? And so in 1964, the culmination of that challenge was in Atlantic City at the Democratic Convention in which the Mississippi Freedom Democrats demanded to be seated. And Fannie Lou Hamer testified before the Rules Committee, famous Lyndon Johnson magically has a press conference to try to diffuse that and take the spotlight off of that. But the damage was already done. And those Democrats were seated. The white Democrats left and kept on leaving. So by 1979, those white people who identify themselves as Southern Democrats, as Mississippi Southern Democrats, as Dixiecrats, were now Republicans. And it had been that way ever since. And the first beneficiary of that locally was a guy named Thad Cochran, who basically had been a Republican his whole political career. And so he got elected to Congress and he ended up going to U.S. Senate and serving for a long time. I had the privilege of running against him. That's how long he was serving, right? In my lifetime. And so, um, but the other beneficiary was a young man named Ronald Reagan. Well, he wasn't that young, but you get the point, right? And when Reagan came, when he spoke at the Shelby County Fair, he talked about states' rights. Sending the message, yeah, you know, so you, you guys who might be still clinging, trying to be a Democrat, it's time for you to come on over because we're all over here now, right? And that was a culmination of the Southern strategy, which, you know, Republicans wanted the White House so bad that when they got scared, in 1968, because they saw George Wallace basically pull those Dixiecrats to independence. And the Republicans, for 12 years, worked to get those Dixiecrats into the Republican Party, and that's where they are to this day, right? And that's for the urgency, because now, with this president, and the mindset that a lot of these guys have had that has been nurtured and, and fed and, and built up by Fox News and Roger Ailes and, and Rush Limbaugh and all these, these propaganda networks that push this agenda, right? This, this new insurrection, this new redneck philosophy, right? And if people get offended by that, then I'm sorry. That's history. And if you continue to do the things that you are doing and say the things you are doing, throwing out the dog whistles that you are blowing, right? Then guess who's also offended? Us. Because those of us who understand history understand the, the repercussions of what those propaganda tools did. Not just for our parents, and our grandparents, and our great-grandparents, but for us right now. And so either 
we can all be offended together. Or black folk need to figure out a way to unite, strategize, and counter it. Because when you study history, you understand that foundations are laid. And sometimes, just like in the Bible, Moses doesn't get to the promised land. But he does the legwork and the foundation work to get everybody else there. Right? And so you can say the same thing with Dr. King. You can say that with the Harvard Law students um, that trained and trained and trained until finally Thurgood Marshall was in a position in the culmination of all those lawsuits dealing with segregation and education to win Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the ultimate landmark case, right? All these things. You, you, the bottom line is, we, we've got to stop being petty. We don't have the luxury of being petty. We don't have the luxury of tearing each other up within our individual caucuses. We don't have the luxury of, of taking rhetoric that is, that is poisonous and painful to us and trying to validate it, right? We don't have the luxury of allowing people to not only divide the nation, but divide us to the point of being self-destructive. We don't have the luxury of killing each other in the streets anymore. We don't have the luxury of ignoring education anymore. We don't have the luxury of just saying, well, if I can be an entertainer, whether it's through sports or music, I'll be all right. No, we don't have that luxury anymore. Do I like music? Yes. Do I love sports? Of course. But I'm also pretty cool with doctors and lawyers and people like Robert Smith who are business folks, right? I'm pretty cool with them too. And I think it's time for us to start exploring that. And hopefully pretty soon I'll get back to discussing some other things on that. Until next time.